Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I want to mention that this will be the last podcast of 2008. We'll take a break next week and return on January 5th, 2009. A happy and healthy new year to all our listeners out there. My guest today is George Sroor, founder and executive director of Building Tomorrow, a charity that builds schools in Africa. George, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. So tell us what Building Tomorrow does and how it got started. Well, Building Tomorrow is a social profit organization that works with university students and, and young people really all over the United States to, build, to raise awareness and also build schools uh, in Uganda at the present time uh, that serve vulnerable children. And we got our start uh, as an organization that um, was really born out of a, an experience that I had working for the United Nations World Food Program and having the opportunity to visit a number of different schools throughout central Uganda uh, that were really in pretty poor shape and after doing a little bit of research realized how far money can go in a developing country versus uh, one uh, the United States. And so the idea was uh, to essentially raise $10,000 to rebuild this, a particular school that I had seen um, during my senior year of college, and the I hope was to raise this money in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and our goal was $10,000. We ended up raising forty-five, and out of that was really born this idea that there were a lot of young people out there who wanted to make a tangible difference in the world, but just perhaps didn't have uh, a medium through which to do it. And so, so you were going to raise ten thousand mm-hmm. in a pretty short period of time. Yep, which is actually a, a rather large sum of money uh, to raise for a project that had never been executed before. Right. So, you did you raise the forty five thousand in that same time period? Correct. And when you were raising the money, what did you tell people the money was going toward? Uh, we just explained the project, which was we were going to rebuild a school that uh, was had been completely built by timber and because of termites in in that part of the world and the climate uh, would pretty much fall apart once or twice a year and would have to be rebuilt. So you so, told people this, and that sounds pretty horrible. Right. And, and they and, gave you money? And, uh, yeah, we had it set up through the College of William and Mary, which is where I was a student, and the university was able to accept funds on our behalf and then send them Send them over. So there was a there was a bit of credibility in that the college had its name behind it, and that's where people were sending their money. And where um, was the money going to actually? When people asked if they did, uh, where did the how was that money going to go from the school to get into a, a different kind of building? What was going to be the what was going to cause that transformation, that building to actually get built? What was uh, the original we, plan? Yeah, I mean, we knew that the school. Um, Meeting Point, which is the school that we ended up giving the money to, 
we, we knew that they had plans. We knew that they had a, a couple of NGOs that were working with them on the ground. NGOs meaning non-governmental government organizations, organizations yeah, private charity um, type things. Groups that we, we knew were quite credible and trustworthy and that we could send the money to uh, and that they would make sure that, that the project would be completed. And so you raised 45. How much money did, did, did the school really just need the 10? Uh, it, yeah, the school needed 10 for the initial design, but what had happened uh, was that we raised 45, and on top of that, uh, another Italian NGO came in and gave another $200,000, which was um, then used to essentially build up. So our money covered the cost of the classrooms that were built on the first floor of this uh, new school, and then the next two um, you know, the, the next two floors that ended up being built uh, were completely funded through this NGO. And tell, give us a little bit of the timing. So which, uh, this was Thanksgiving of what year? This is Thanksgiving of 2004, which was my senior year. So this is four years ago. So uh, how long did it take that school to get built? Uh, we opened the school in May of 2006. Okay. Um, so roughly... Um, you know, between 14 and 16 months um, from the time that we actually got going on construction. So that was great. Yep. And you felt good about that. And um, why wasn't that the end of the story? Um, well, one of the things, you know, as I began to do a little bit more research, I started to realize the disparity between the number of kids in the U.S. who go to school every day, uh, and that, that number is about 38 million and the number of kids in sub-Saharan Africa who don't go to school. And at the time, that was 46 million, and now that number has been revised to 41 million. Uh, in either case, you still have more kids in sub-Saharan Africa who don't go to school than those who do in the States. And for me, that was just kind of a wake-up call because people who I've kind of looked up to, I think, is, is just really inspiring people in the world, and, and Desmond Tutu, who's our honorary chairman, certainly fits that bill, um, keep coming back to the idea that education is what's going to be the fundamental change um, that will allow countries like Uganda and others to really uh, progress and, and get themselves out of um, the continuous cycles of, of poverty that have kind of afflicted the countries. And so to me it was Seeing that and kind of doing a little bit of research, um, I realized that what we really needed to do was not only put some money in education, but we needed to go where no one else had gone before and try and build schools in areas that were extremely depressed and had huge amounts of children who had never stepped foot in the classroom before. And so how, what was the next step? Um, the, um, the next Really you built you built a school, and that's nice. And you realized there are other kids who could use the school. So right. how'd you proceed from there? Well, what we did was uh, we ended up going through. Um, you know, I, I, I applied for a couple of different fellowships that would allow me to um, have the necessary funds to, to at least get started. And I, I was able to get one um, called the Simon Fellowship for Noble Purpose, and. After graduating and, and spending the summer working in Washington, um, I came back to Indianapolis, which is where I grew up, and said, okay, we've got this money. You know, how do we get this started? And 
a lot of my time was spent meeting with people who'd maybe been down this road before, um, who had been involved in some kind of some form of social entrepreneurship, and also obviously had had a lot to figure out on the Uganda end. I was very fortunate to follow up with a number of contacts that I had made throughout the course of my internship with the World Food Program um, to meet with folks and speak with others on the phone about what it would take on the ground. It became very evident very quickly that we we needed a staff and we needed someone to represent us in Uganda. And so the first um, first couple months were really spent trying to find out who that person was and then travel to Uganda to meet with them. And then? Uh, you know, from, from there, um, we, you know, I think the first thing that I learned is you've, you've got to always, uh, you know, we might have great ideas, but sometimes the best ones come from, from folks on the ground. And we, we had uh, a number of discussions where we went through what we thought would be the model for Building Tomorrow, which was to rebuild existing schools similar to what we had done in the first, first go-around. But we realized uh, and, and did some more research to figure out that what, where we really needed, uh, again, was in areas that, that hadn't had access to schools before. And so you started to do what? Um, How did you get that launched? From from there, we essentially said, okay, uh, if we're going to do this and we're going to do this in a sustainable way, we we needed to work with the government and any uh, any organization that goes into a country and says they're going to work with the government probably gets um, looked at in a funny way because the governments in that part of the world aren't necessarily seen as being the most efficient or transparent. Correct. But we realized that uh, schools, in one sense, can put um, can definitely put politicians between a rock and a hard place because if you build a school and open it and there are no teachers in it, the first person that a member of the community is going to complain to is, is going to be their member of uh, their local representative. Sure. And before you know it, there's going to be enough of a clamor that there's going to actually be some some um, extreme you know, distaste among the community and a big movement to actually staff the school. And Uganda's unique in the sense that um, it was one of one of the first countries to adopt universal primary education as uh, an initiative of the government, and to a large extent, it's helped bring in many more kids into schools. At the same time, it hasn't been as effective, I think, as many people would like it to be um, because it's led to very crowded classrooms and um, the quality has has not necessarily uh, been as high as as it ought to be. But we realized that to create something sustainable, it it wasn't going to be able... uh, We weren't going to be able to just um, build a school and not let um, build a school and, and have a community in the United States actually fund the cost, the ongoing costs, including salaries for teachers and so forth. So we realized that we needed to partner up with the government and use this UPE funding um, to our advantage. What's that? The Universal Primary Education uh-huh. Initiative. Their funding. budget, what they right. have going. Right. So now let me be. Um, let me be skeptical here before we go any further. There are a lot of organizations that have uh, funded schools in poor parts of the world. 
And I think the general effect of those has been uh, quite small in that either, as you point out, you have, a, you have a school, but you don't have teachers, or you have a school and you don't have kids, or you have a school and teachers and the kids, but the teachers aren't very good, so the kids don't learn very much. Or the worst case, um, you have a school, you have teachers, you have the kids, but there aren't many opportunities in the economy, so the kids are better off, unfortunately, uh, not going to school, and they stop showing up after a while. So what is your confidence, having people on the ground there and having, I assume, been there numerous times in Uganda, how do you know you're having an impact? One of the things that fascinated me about your story is, well, one, the the um, the ease at which you uh, were able to achieve some of these goals, which I think is very, uh, very inspiring. But, of course, we want more than just you raised 45000 more than just you built a school. How, how do you know and how do you try to make sure that you're having an impact on the children rather than just uh, building a building? Well, I think, I mean, it's a very valid question and one that uh, I would be quite frank with you and say that we're still trying to figure out how we answer that. Um, what's different, though, I think, you know, if, if you – if you build a well uh, and the well begins to work and you're, you're pumping clean water, you can immediately see an impact in the health of, of children and, and others in the community. Um, a school's um, ability to make it an impact, I think, is much more prolonged um, because we're talking about a school that is going to go from first to seventh grade and, and at present even the ones that we've opened right now don't have all seven grades because none of these kids that we're working with are, are at a point at which they, they can go into the top class. Um, so I think being able to look at what the impact can be uh, is right now is, is one of the things that we're spending a lot of time doing. And a couple of different things that, that I would mention is that instead of just us coming in and building the school on our, our own, um, the significant part of the equation is that the community provides over 25,000 hours of labor. Yeah, talk about that, because that's, that's the thing that also attracted me to your story. So yeah. talk about how that works and how you got that started. Did it, has it changed, or is it kind of the way it started? And uh, tell me uh, how that's going. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of those things where um, Joseph, our country director, said, you know, we need to ask the community to build a school, and I completely didn't believe that there was any chance that they would actually do it. Um, and again, this was this is where I realized I just needed to, you know, take a back seat at some point and and allow our in-country staff to flesh this out. But what we've what we've realized is that. Um, having that community component is, is extremely important. Um, we certainly don't construct schools as quickly as we would be able to if we were, if we were paying all of the laborers. But what we, we know is true is that there is a huge sense of pride amongst the parents and even sometimes the kids who come out to help and build because they have, you know, they're actively engaged and involved in the process. And you know, we, we've we actually 
had a, a, a situation where a, a parent was attending a um, kind of a debate of, of local government officials who were running for re-election. One of them took credit for, for one of the schools that we built. And she got up, and, and this was her telling the story afterwards, she got up and said, um, you actually had nothing to do with this. This was an organization that came to us, and us as a community decided that, yes, we needed a school here, and we were going to work together to make it happen. And so it, when you look at, kind of when you look at the overall impact, you kind of see the empowerment that that gave um, especially this, this woman, but, but an entire community to feel like um, they may not have the funds to pay school fees, but they have the ability to contribute their labor to actually construct a school where their kids can come. Now, your first thought would be, as, as an outsider, well, it's a nice idea having the parents volunteer, but what do they know about building a school? So besides taking a little bit longer, is there a quality issue? So how do you, how do you get those? We, we, have, a, we have a foreman um, who is paid, who's, you know, essentially a general contractor. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that um, he, and, and if he needs to at certain points, um, you know, it definitely provides the guidance. And, and we don't, um, you know, the roofing, let's say, of the school is not done by, um, by unskilled laborers. Um, the, critical, the critical points are certainly done by, uh, by tradesmen who, who are, are definitely uh, qualified to do that work. But um, at the same time, you know, it's interesting because over the course of a construction project, you see um, one of the biggest, I think one of the biggest enemies that we have is, is that of trust. Um, you work in a country like Uganda uh, in communities which have oftentimes been promised something before, either by someone, you know, either by, by a, a Western person or organization or even a Ugandan who's come through and said they're going to take a collection to build a hospital or whatnot and they take the money and they run. And what we find is that when we first say we're going to do this and, and the community signs on, you have a small amount of people who are showing up to help dig the foundation because they don't believe that you're actually going to have the money to be able to complete the project. And as, as things continue and as the, the project goes on, um, there are more and more people who start showing up and one of the sites that, that we were at in October, there was a gentleman, a, a kid who's in secondary school, so our equivalent of high school, and he said he, he started showing up not only to the, um, to the construction site but the mobilization meetings because he was very fortunate, was able to get a scholarship to attend a, a, a secondary school nearby, but he has three sisters who don't have the chance to go to school. He said, I'm coming here every day after school to give my sisters a chance to do what I've done. And so I think that the, the element of getting the community involved has been very important um, in terms of allowing people to see that even though they may not have deep pockets and be able to afford school fees and uniforms and so forth, that they're still, they're, they can still contribute in a positive way to give their kids a shot at getting an education. I just think that's incredibly important. I think that's the cleverest and and maybe the most important part of the project. Um, one of the you know there's a big debate in the United States about um, how do we make our schools better, and some people want to spend more money 
And we've been doing that for about 40 years. We've been increasing expenditures per pupil at a rather staggering rate. And we haven't had much success. And you know, one possibility is that things would be much, much worse if we hadn't spent the money. The fact that things have gotten worse while we spent the money doesn't mean that the money caused the bad things to happen. But other people have suggested that the way we spend the money is the problem. And I've started to wonder about the importance of the fact that our public school system is generally uh, without charge to the students and to the parents. Uh, there is a charge, of course. There is a cost. Nothing right. is free. The cost is, is levied in the – collected in the form of property taxes typically in the United States and, and some federal funding, local property tax and federal funding. But the fact that it's given away uh, from the perspective of the parents, the fact that whether you go or don't go doesn't change how much you pay has to be part of the problem. And and one of the insights of, of the private school system is that, for example, I remember a conversation I had with the head of the Catholic school system of St. Louis. And she said that every student, almost all the students were on some kind of scholarship. Very few people could, could carry their own weight in terms of tuition. But nobody got a full scholarship. Nobody paid zero. Every parent of every kid in there had to make some tangible monetary contribution to their kids' education. And the theory was was that that generated some kind of buy-in. And it's sort of a reverse version. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the analogy is, but it's a version of, of Milton Friedman's insight. that You spend your own money on yourself very carefully, and you spend other people's money on other people very uncarefully. And the analogy is, is that when you're spending your own money, you take care of stuff. Stuff that's given to you, you don't take quite the same amount of care. And so I think that has to be a huge factor in some of your success. Well, I mean, one of the things that we, you know, we, we have, um, once the school gets going, we set up parent-teacher committees, um, kind of like a PTA or a PTO, whatever, you know, it, it's called in the States. And... What, what's really interesting is to see how parents handle um, the issue of lunches. Um, we, you know, it, it's known that um, kids obviously perform much better when they're well-fed, and in some of the communities that we're working in, that's just simply um, the, uh, kids oftentimes will skip a meal and so forth. And so um, parents have, have come to us and our staff on the ground and said, well, are you going to feed them? And we have said consistently, no, um, that's for you, the parents, to figure out. And at, at a couple of schools, what's happened is that the parents have decided a certain cost um, that a, a family needs to pay per term, and there are three terms in the year. And what's been, what's been neat to see is that in some cases where a family or a parent cannot pay the cost in cash, um, the parents have begun to figure out, well, what does that, what's that contribution mean, let's say, in Mays, or what's that contribution in hours? So you might not be able to afford to pay, but if you come and actually cook porridge three times a week, then for us, that's, that's good. And obviously you can't um, – obviously there's a cost to the materials that go into to creating the porridge, and not everybody can, um, can pay in an alternative way. But we really feel like those kinds of um, 
those kinds of um, experiences that the parents are, are getting and, and the discussions that they're having amongst themselves are, are very important in the overall transformation that we hope a school provides within a community. So, um, so you're not just building the building. You're continuing to run the school we, in we some have fashion. A, so, so the schools are built on land that we've purchased, and the schools belong to us. The government technically leases the school from us for free hmm. or for a very nominal fee. Um, and the reason we do that is obviously we want to protect our donors who have given money uh, and want to make sure that the school itself is going to be used as a school for a long time. Um, so that, the, the, that's, world, the World Bank might learn a lesson from that, but yeah, go <laughs> ahead. So you, that's the way you do it. Right, so, so that's important to us. And um, because, you know, eventually what we, what we see uh, and what, what we think we can get to is that every, every one of our schools is built on at least three acres of land and some up to seven. And we're working in very agrarian areas in a country that can harvest twice a year because of its location. And we know that if we if we really spent some time developing a vocational training program in agriculture, that it's not inconceivable that we could have a, a, a profit-generating school that essentially pays for itself and its teachers through, um, through the crop that it produces. Hmm. And not only will it generate income, but it will also teach um, what we think is a very valuable skill to kids who uh, may not end up going into the city um, or working in a in a corporate environment, but they'll have at least you know they'll be able to do more than subsistence farming, um, which is something that we feel can again continue to empower the community um, and and raise the stock of of the folks who live there. So, you know that's that's kind of our our ultimate goal, and we're actually we're trying to look at ways in which maybe um, in the future before we actually build schools. You know, we're looking at an incremental design system where instead of building the whole school all at once, we build uh, classroom by classroom um, and, and get the buy-in from the community, not so much in the labor to construct the school, but the labor to till the fields and take care of the fields so that we can begin to generate income at a much earlier point in the, the timeline of the school. It's creative. I'm not sure it'll work, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, we're... Um, you know, I, I think that uh, I think that the um, possibilities are there for something like that to to, to be successful, um, based on what we've seen it in a few other case studies and in a couple other schools in the area. Um, so, you know, that's something that we we definitely want to continue looking at. So, how many schools have you built now total? Um, in total, we have um, we have three that are up and running, um, and two more that are in the midst of construction and two more that we'll begin construction of in January. I should mention, by the way, that one of the reasons that I got uh, interested in the story is I saw some photographs of people building, starting to build the school, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I thought they were very um, inspiring and very moving. And I hope we can put uh, a link up to some of those pictures. But, you know, in the beginning of a process, there's always a lot of excitement and enthusiasm uh, it's harder to sustain that over the course of many, many months, where the work is physically demanding, and inevitably, you know, like we talked about digging the foundation and bricklaying. I assume is part of it, and that's also it's not it's not thrilling work. Um, of course, it can be thrilling if you think of it as taking care of your kids. Uh, so I'm just curious, 
have you had some disappointments, things that went wrong or, you know, setbacks along the way um, as some of that initial enthusiasm waned? Yeah, I mean, I think you, uh, over the course of a construction project that can take up a, up to a year, you definitely have really frustrating moments. I mean, we were supposed to open two schools in February of this year, and they didn't open till, uh, till June. Um, and you look at, um, you know, we were, I was very frustrated, but I think frustrated from the sense that we're looking, I'm looking at it through the lens of, of being someone who lives in the States. Um, when you sit down with the staff in Uganda and you, you start to look at why things took so long and why things were late and so on and so forth, um, it actually comes down to something, you know, it comes down to uh, a number of deaths in the community, be it malaria or HIV or, or whatnot, and, and the local custom that you take three days off um, every time someone in the community has passed away. And all of a sudden, you know, if you were to light up a calendar with the days off that, that people had to take for that reason, um, you're looking at probably um, a death at least once every two weeks um, in the greater community that's, that completely halted work. How big um, is the community that we're talking about? So, well, How many kids? And are there other schools, or is this the only one? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're so we do a kind of a, a needs assessment before we actually decide to look at a community um, and figure out if there's a potential for us to build a school there. And you know, we look at things. Um, we look at it kind of in a, in a greater context in terms of how far, um, you know, up to two kilometers of a walk from the site that kids would would walk to get to the school. Um, so some some areas have about ten villages, and, and maybe each village has, um, you know, could have a hundred people or so um, that that make it up. Um, we've been. I mean, one of the thing that's one thing that's unique about Uganda is that it's it's the youngest country in the world. Half of its population is under the age of fifteen. Wow. So even in in places where we're building a school that's eventually going to serve three hundred and 25 kids, um, we've, a couple places have what we were able to find, at least in our needs assessment, we found them to have at least 600 kids who don't have access to school. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to meet a need, but we're still not even um, being able to serve everybody. So what happens? Um, well, that's kind of a motivator for for. Uh, parents and so forth to come and and work because we give preference um, for a, enrollment to the school based on who comes to help build. So, you know, you find that um, you have a lot of people who 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 show up because they know that that's um, that they know that there's something in it for them. That's great. Incentives matter. They right. do. So. Uh, You've built. Did I think get out the numbers right. You've, you've built three. You got two more about to come online. Is that what? Is that what uh -huh. you said? And that yep. that gets us to five. Um, how many do you want to build? Um, well, we're. I mean, we're on. We're on pace to have ten uh, built and open um, by 2010. And um, you know, I think 
one of the things that we're we're looking at is um, you know what does happen to a student when they finish primary school. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there are some some pretty big benefits. Um, girls, for instance, their likelihood of contracting HIV AIDS are cut in half if, if they get to seventh grade, um, and that's all fine and well. But you know what what more can we do past that? So pretty good. That's a great um, start. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've had. Um, It's not uncommon for someone who has completed seventh grade to be able to get a job that that sustains them um, in in Uganda. But we, I mean, we do want to do more. But we just want to. I've I've always been careful not to want to do too much too fast um, because I think we need to be able to get down what we're working on right now pretty well before we start looking at perhaps the possibility of um, maybe working in uh, perhaps working in secondary schools and providing some sort of continuation for these students sure. or, or what. So, Well, I think one of the lessons we've learned from William Easterly's work, which uh, another thing that attracted me to your project, is uh, it's not very grand, <laughs> uh, which is a plus, not a minus. It's a feature, not a bug. You're, you're not trying to s- transform the educational system of Uganda in 18 months mm-hmm. or two years. You're going to help 300 kids get a better education. Right. And every little bit helps and that's not actually a little bit so it is i don't mean to suggest it's not grand it's somewhat grand but it's not grandiose right and i think that is the key to um successful social entrepreneurship yeah i mean i think you know one of the most uh profound pieces of advice i think i've gotten uh is that you know social entrepreneurship is a marathon it's not a sprint so you know the work that we're doing um if 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 you are uh you know, you got to be, you got to realize that um, there's there's a lot to what we're doing, and um, you know, we don't have to. I don't think we need to be able to put every kid in Uganda in school to count ourselves successful. At the end of the day. Well, I think you'd probably be unsuccessful because it's easy to do that badly. I think that's the most <laughs> right. interesting challenge of this kind of transformational uh, effort. Mm-hmm. Is uh, most people measure success by dollars raised or dollars spent or size of staff or kids in school, and those are not the right measures. And I think most charitable activities founder struggle and fail because they get into uh, a measure, a problem of trying to measure stuff that's the wrong stuff to measure. It's good to measure stuff. It's really important so that you can try to quantify how well you're doing and improve but if you start paying attention to the wrong things, you end up forgetting your mission. And um, I think it's a huge challenge of every organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think our mission um, initially was to, to work on the bricks and mortar and, and to build the schools. But I think what we found um, is that, that we feel like we have a place to do a little bit more um, and that we have the, the opportunity to do that using the school as kind of the central place for a community. It just be um, careful because it gets harder, <laughs> uh, right? It, it's um, specialization is a really good thing, and what you're good at might just be building those schools with the parents' input. I mean, that might be just that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, we definitely don't want to. Um, we, you know, we, we don't want to we don't want to stretch it ourselves too thin. And I think I mentioned that before. Yeah, that's um, important. But I think you know we want to look at. Um, you know, we, we want to look at what aspects of education we can do well at and, and see how 
um, how those might play in and, and, and benefit the community at large. So you're sitting in Indi- – we're having this conversation um, in uh, – I think today's December 11th. Um, is that right? Or the 10th? I think it's today's 10th. the 10th, yeah. Yep. Uh, and you're – I'm sitting here in Virginia, and you're sitting in Indianapolis, Indiana, mm-hmm. which is pretty far from Uganda. Yep. Um, in many dimensions, one of which being miles, but there are others. How are you staying on top of this, and how often do you go there? What's your day-to-day activities like in in running this organization, and what are the virtues and challenges of being that far away? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, I'm not – my strength is not to be in-country 24-7. Um, you know, in, in Uganda, the price of, of land for someone who shows up from the West is probably three or four times what it is for somebody who's Ugandan. Um, and we work a lot in, in purchasing things and making deals with different people and working with the government and so forth. So in, in a way, uh, it's best that, for me not to be there and to have a staff on the ground who's fully competent and capable of taking care of everything. Um, we try and keep in touch at least weekly with our Uganda staff um, who spends a lot of their time out of an office and actually in the field. Um, and, and I spend a lot of my days working, kind of fundraising on, on a number of different levels, but also taking care of a lot of the administrative things, which um, when I first began, that, you know, first began an organization had absolutely no idea that there was so much to be done. <laughs> Surprise, yeah. Yeah, and um, most of it, a lot of it you feel like pertains um, very little to the actual program side of what we do, um, but it's just kind of the nature of the beast, I suppose. Um, so I, I don't think any two days or any two weeks are alike, um, but I do. I go about three times a year to Uganda um, and do a, a considerable amount of traveling within the U.S., um, either working with our campus chapters um, or work, you know, trying to meet with donors and so forth. Let's go back to this, um, uh, just a side comment you made, but which is, uh, you know, very poignant and and uh, important, which is uh, death in those places. Um, are you able to, are you going to work on malaria and AIDS and those kind of issues uh, since they're so tied into people's lives uh, in those communities that you're working in? Yeah, you know, I think it, it, it kind of brings up the point about, again, about uh, um, what what's our strength and, and where are we fit to do the best job that we can. Um, you know, malaria uh, in one sense is perhaps an easier um, easier issue to deal with because a lot of times, you know, a, a simple a bed net or a simple treatment can, can help, um, can really make, make a difference between life and death for a kid. Um, HIV AIDS is a completely different story. Um, just because of the, the treatments, the medical treatments that are required and, and the cost to those um, as well. So we're, uh, we, have a couple, we have a couple funders who are interested in looking at what we might be able to do to improve the health of, of kids at our schools, and we certainly realize that health is an, is an important aspect of them doing well uh, in school. But uh, at the same time, we're just trying to figure out 
where what's appropriate for us to get ourselves involved with. And um, well, it's, I think that's the right attitude. Yeah, I mean, we've had you know we've had a couple um, couple folks who've been to Uganda and have maybe left money to deworm the kids or, or something very basic. And and when it's come time to actually have that done, the community has been very uh, kind of has has looked at things in a very suspect way because mm-hmm. they don't realize that. Uh, you know, they, they may not trust yeah. the pill that's being taken. Sure. Or they may not even know about, or they, they may not even realize that kids need to be dewormed, and that's an actual issue. Sure. Um, so there are just a lot of cultural things that, uh, if you want to talk about negatives of sitting in Indianapolis, um, it's difficult, perhaps, to convey to a, a well-intentioned donor that some of these things have to be figured out and discussed before we can actually move forward with, with those ideas. So a related issue would be, you know, what parents' uh, alternatives are. And in some or most of these communities that you're dealing with, uh, that you're involved with, are you the only school? Um, we're the only formal school. Um, there are, in some cases, schools that have been operating for a long time but without any um, authorization from the Department of Education or the Ministry of Education. So they they are open, they're running, and they're kind of like a glorified day daycare because uh, they provide a place for kids to go, but the kids will not be able to take exams to pass from primary to secondary school. Because? Uh, because they're not accredited. They don't have uh-huh. teachers that have obtained certification. Um, the schools are not in any good shape and a number of other issues. So for you, in your schools or in the other government schools that are there, uh, are all those things in place? I mean, certification to me is, in America, is a, is a great barrier to education. Uh, I am allowed to teach, uh, I can teach in any college in America pretty much. I happen to have a PhD, but there are colleges where you can teach with a master's degree or probably nothing at all as an adjunct or another format. Uh, Whereas in America's uh, government-run schools, uh, you have to be certified, which unfortunately is not particularly related to being a good teacher. It would be nice if it were. Then you could at least make the case. But there are many public schools in the United States where the teachers, of course, are not very good, and certification had no value or impact. It's uh, mainly a hoop to jump through, as far as I can tell, to discourage too many people from being teachers. So is that the case in Uganda as well? Do you think certification there is is a positive or just um, a, a, a hoop? Um, well, I would, I, would, I would say it's probably a bit of both. I mean, it's good to, you know, I think in one sense what the certification process does do is that it reaffirms that you actually really want to do this for a living. Um, because I think as, as maybe some teachers would agree in the States, it's not exactly, um, in some cases, it's not the most glamorous of jobs. Um, so you get people who who do enjoy that interaction with kids. Um, at the same time, I mean, I think by virtue of being in Uganda, um, there are a number of, you know, there, there are a number of, of um, systems that in place that that are simply left over from 
being a British protectorate or, or whatever else that really today don't have much relevance. And so I think the, um, I think the national certification program that's used in Uganda is probably a bit out of date and could use um, significant, a significant overhaul. Uh, and that's why one of the people that we have on our staff is someone who, who is a teacher trainer, in a sense, um, to be able to help reinforce some of the things that we feel teachers should be able to know or, or to know and, and do in a classroom. Yeah, running a classroom is a challenge in and of itself. Then there's the subject matter, and then there's the motivating – I mean, it's an enormously um, underappreciated job. Um, what does a teacher in Uganda earn? Uh, about $100 a month. And how does that compare to the average worker in Uganda? Well, the average – I think average income is like $285 a year or something like that. So teachers are prestige is a is a well a very good paying job. Yeah, they you know they they do well, but um, they also have you know they they have one of the issues that comes up where we're working is teacher housing because um, we're not living you know we're not in an urban setting where there are plenty of opportunities for housing. So we've had to um, we've had to look at how we could provide some sort of. Um, you know whether it might be a bike to get a teacher back and forth to a place where there is good house, decent housing, or um, you know work with folks in the community to be able to open up some some options for housing. So um, yeah, there there are a lot of issues surrounding teachers and then making again. You know it's nice that you built a school, but how can you make sure that the the quality of education is is where you want it to be? Maybe you need an apartment building on that on that seven acres. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of different Dorm. there are a lot of different options. I think one thing that our model is good at is that it provides a tangible result to the university chapters that we work with that can at the end of the day point to something that they've done. Yep. Uh, at the same time, it's a bit of a hindrance because um, there's a you know we can say it costs forty five thousand dollars to build a school, and that seems like something that's pretty attainable. Um, at a college campus, especially a large college campus that, you know, might have that many students. So if you get everybody to give you a dollar, you've built a school. Uh, and we want to be careful because as you continue to add things, um, you might, you know, we, we might portray the idea of building a school as being something that's out of the league of, of a lot of young people that we're working with. Um, we, we don't necessarily want to do that. We obviously want to make sure that the school's good, but we don't want to alienate people when it comes to, um, you know, giving them the opportunity to get involved in, in something like this. So we're trying to evaluate what makes the most sense for us in terms of um, is it providing that housing or providing a means to transport themselves to that kind of housing or, or what. So what proportion of your funding comes from individual college students? Um, well, currently, 100% of what we... How many chapters do you have? Use, well, we, we have about 15 college chapters now. Uh, and most of the funding that supports the schools themselves comes from, from those college students. And we do separate fundraising to take care of the administrative costs of the organization. So that's to cover your salary, the people on the ground there. Right. And uh, have you been imitated? Are there other college activities going on doing other what you might call micro social entrepreneurship like well, this? Well, I think what we found, um, 
especially at William and Mary, was after we began, after this took off, um, our William and Mary chapter probably has one of the hardest times raising money because um, <laughs> the project that we did, Christmas in Kampala, I think was a um, was kind of an indication to a lot of people that we could, or something like this could be done. So you've had a lot of different programs pop up on campuses like that. Um, but one of the things that I think distinguishes the organization is that our main target is young people in terms of getting them involved. Um, I think if you look at organizations like Habitat for Humanity and, and some of these others that, that still do good work, Save the Children, World Vision, whatever, their, um, their main target in terms of, of donors has been people, you know, older people, people with, with deeper pockets, um, which, you know, we certainly don't turn away here, but our main goal is to try and work with young people. And I think that distinguishes us in the sense that that's where we really began. How long do you think you'll be doing this? Uh, personally? That's a great question. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> um, you want to do it for 20 years? You know, I don't know. I think... Uh, is it fun? A, a month before a month before I graduated college, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, so I'm kind of uh, I'm I'm one to just roll with the punches and see where things things lead. Is it fun? It is. I think some days more so than others, uh, but you certainly have the you certainly have a lot of different challenges and a lot of different things to to deal with day in and day out, uh, and I enjoy. I, I enjoy that um, because there isn't anything that's routine. What's been um, What's been the most frustrating part of this experience, and the most rewarding? Well, the most frustrating is certainly, I think, seeing um, you know it. You, you can read stories, let's say, about corruption and where money is being spent in Uganda, and I think to myself, well. You know, why am I doing what I'm doing if, if people within the country can't even figure out where best to put their money? Uh, and I think it's very frustrating when you look at it in that sense because you feel like uh, people ought to compliment the work that you're doing by making better decisions um, with, with where money goes instead of buying a new private jet for the president or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, what's, what's I think most rewarding about it is when you walk into a classroom and you see a kid, you know, right up on the board, uh, how do fish breathe? And he's looking out to his classmates and his teacher looking for an answer. Um, and to know that we've kind of created that, that space where those questions can be asked and um, imaginations can kind of be, uh, can be triggered and, 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 you know, smarts hopefully uh, improved. It, it's kind of it's very exciting to see that. Um, and it's also really rewarding to see and talk with students on this side of the water who've been involved with our work, who've maybe traveled to Uganda and have completely changed their direction of what they wanted to do um, to, to fall more in line with some of the experiences that they've had with us. How many students have made that trip, do you think, roughly? Um, we've, we've taken probably 40 kids um, over the last two years, and, and we've got another trip coming up in January. And what do um, they do when they go? Um, you know, they, they, they participate in, in the 
construction in the builds that are you know on site. Um, they do a homestay with the family Uganda just to get a sense for what that's like and. So the, it's, it's a very packed two weeks, but I think it's, a, it's also a very eye-opening one for many folks um, who've never been to Africa or some who've never left the country. I'm sure. Uh, in closing, um, what advice do you have for people who want to change the world as someone who has changed the world? I don't know if I would go that far. Um, well, you know, I, I would say um, just be just be very diligent about what, what you want to do and, and also persistent. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when I first got started working in the upstairs of my parents' house, thought that this was all kind of a, uh, this just wasn't going to work. And Your parents were probably two of those people, or yeah, it may yeah. have been. And, and not, I mean, but, but I thrive off of that, so yeah, it's not like I really you. mind you know, and in a way, I think that's what drives a lot of people. Um, but I think over time, uh, if I look at what our initial goal was in terms of what we wanted to do and how we were going to do it, we've done a complete 180 in terms of the, the methodology we were going to use to get to that point. How so? Um, well, just in the sense that, you know, we thought we were going to come in and build schools for existing schools and that we were going to have them built all ourselves and and that we were, you know, we were just going to do bricks and mortar and, and walk away. And I think we've totally switched that around in, in terms of saying we're going to actually start new schools. We're going to go to places where you've got to drive, you know, five minutes off a tarmac road to even get close to where we're going to do this. Um, and and that has been a very, that, that's totally different. Um, just because of the, the constructs and the infrastructure that you have to support that kind of thing. Uh, whereas you could lean on an existing school to give you a plan and design and so forth. We're the ones that actually have to do that and meet with the contractors and get schools approved by the Ministry of Education and so on and so forth. So things are quite different, but I think uh, we've been very persistent at, at saying education is where we want to work, but we've got to continue to be open to the fact that we may not know right at this time what education needs to be successful. My guest today has been George Schroer, founder and executive director of Building Tomorrow. George, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.